Okay, as the uh, time of Christmas draws near, it's inevitable that uh, many of us will be asked to answer two very different but equally difficult questions. The first question is usually asked by younger children and is directed towards parents and grandparents and is generally framed or phrased as follows. You know, is Santa Claus real or does Santa exist? So for those who have stumbled over this question or one similar to it, I've got good news for you. I have come across one of the all-time great answers. It is one father's answer to his children. And as an engineer, you will quickly notice he takes a somewhat scientific approach as he answers this question. He said, children, as you can, you can just picture this. And having been in the construction industry for 20-some years, you know, I can just, I've been in meetings like this. Structural engineers, mechanical engineers, you know, engineers of all kinds. You know, they're sitting down, and you can just imagine it right now. Children, first of all, no known species of reindeer can fly. But there are 300,000 species of living organisms yet to be classified. And while most of these are insects and germs, this does not completely rule out flying reindeer, which only Santa has ever seen. Secondly, children, there are 2 billion children, persons under 18 in the world. But since Santa doesn't appear to handle the Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, Buddhist children, that reduces the workload to 15% of the total, or 378 million according to Population Reference Bureau. At an average census rate of 3.5 children per household, that's 91.8 million homes, and one presumes there's at least one good child in each home. <laughs> Thirdly, Santa has 31 hours of Christmas work with which to work. So, a Christmas to work. Okay, thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the Earth, assuming he travels east to west, which seems most logical, this works out to 822.6 visits per second. Now, this is to say that for each Christian household with good children, Santa has one one-thousandth of a second to park, hop out of the sleigh, jump down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left, get back up the chimney, into a sleigh, move on to the next house. Assuming that each of these 91.8 million stops are evenly distributed around the earth, which of course we know to be false, but we would uh, presume this no matter what. We now, we now recognize that 0.78 million miles per household or a total trip of 75.5 million miles, not counting stops to do what most of us would do at least once every 31 hours. <laughs> this means that Santa's sleigh is moving 650 miles per second or 3,000 times the speed of sound. For purposes of comparison, the fastest man-made man -made vehicle on Earth, the Ulysses space probe, moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per second. A conventional reindeer can run tops 15 miles an hour. Fourthly, the payload on the sleigh adds another interesting element. Assuming each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, which is about two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,300 tons, not count of, counting Santa, who is invariably described as overweight. <laughs> On land, Santa's you know, conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds. Granted that flying reindeer, if you remember point one, can pull 10 times the normal amount, we cannot do the job with eight or nine. We need 214,200 reindeer. 
And then this increases the payload, not even counting the weight of the sleigh, to 354,430 tons, or four times the amount of the weight of the Queen Elizabeth II. And lastly, 353,000 tons traveling 650 miles per second creates enormous air resistance. And the heat that this will generate will render the reindeer in the same fashion as space aircrafts re-entering uh, re the Earth's atmosphere. The lead pair of the reindeer will absorb 14.3 cotillion joules of energy per second each. In short, they will burst into flames instantaneously. <clears throat> and exposing the reindeer behind them, creating a deafening, sonic, a deafening sonic booms in their wake. The entire reindeer team will be vaporized within 4.26 thousandths of a second. Santa, meanwhile, will be subjected to the centrifugal force of 17,500 times greater than gravity. A 250-pound Santa, which seems ridiculously slim to me, uh, would be pinned to the back of a sleigh by 4,315,015 pounds of force. Children, in conclusion, if Santa ever did deliver presents on Christmas Eve, he's dead now. <laughs> I hope that helps. So that should eliminate that question once and for all. But on a much more serious note, I mentioned that two questions are inevitably asked this time of year. And the second question is directed towards Christians, and it is at the heart of everything we say that we believe. It is at the heart of the reason we celebrate Christmas. And the question is this, why did God become a man? Why did God become a man? And the answer to that question determines whether heaven or hell awaits in your future. Why did God become a man? And as we think about that, you know, I would like and I hope that in our time that we have together, that it will cause some to think in ways that they never thought possible or as they never previously thought. Why did God become a man? And that's the simple outline that we'll look at. And that is the outline that you have before you. If you've got one, you'll take a look and I'll follow that to some degree. You know, why God became a man. And I'll address it as a statement of fact as it's revealed in the Bible. And first of all, you'll notice that I've got down, God became a man to reveal God to man. And the second point is that God became a man to redeem man to God. And that's the two simple yet profound facts that we'll find before us today. So let's take the first one. You know, God became a man to reveal God to man. Now, I realize that there are those who deny the existence of a creator, um, you know, the, the, deny the existence of a supreme being, or, you know, as we would like to call him, God. There are those who deny this, and they'll continue to do so regardless of evidence contrary to that belief. You know, because as I've mentioned many times before, you know, belief isn't just a matter of fact. Belief is a matter of the heart or a matter of the will. You can lay out all the facts or the evidence before a person, but there are people who they will just refuse to believe because they just frankly don't want to believe. 
and as doctors, you know, and I, and I spend a lot of time with doctors at this point in my life, and, and they run into patients all the time, and they'll tell them that, you know, this is what your scan says, this is what your PET scan says, this is what your, you know, all your blood work tells you, and that they run into people that, you know what, I don't care what you tell me because I don't want to believe what you say. I want to believe I'm okay. I want to believe that I'm well. I don't want to believe I have cancer. I don't want to believe what you have to say. And so it doesn't matter the objective evidence that's put before them. So belief isn't just a matter of objective evidence that we examine with our minds, process it, and then we say we believe it or don't. See, belief also encompasses our heart or our, <clears throat> or our will. You know, will you believe this or not? And so this message is not designed for those who, frankly, have already made up their mind. And the reason that they've made it up is because to think differently than they believe would totally radically change everything that they think. This message is designed for folks who are open-minded, who are examining the evidence, looking at the facts, trying to come to a conclusion based on objective evidence and not subjective feelings or emotions. And so what I want you to do is if, if you're in that category where you're open to, well, you know what, give, give, give me what you got. Show me the facts. Show me the evidence. Chuck, you tell me why you've come to believe in a God, in a creator, in, in, in a supreme being. You tell me why you believe in this being, this person, this force, whatever it is, and I'll consider it. And you know, and if, and if the facts are overwhelming, and if the facts you know, cause me to be moved by, <clears throat> by your position, for me to move to another position, then you know what, so be it. Let's, let's look at it, because I want to know the truth because the truth sets people free. And so as we go through this, we'll look at this, and I want to share with you some of the reasons why I've come to believe that there is a God. And the first reason has to do with the material universe. And what I mean by material universe is if you look around and you see everything around us, you see the sun, you see the stars, you see the moon, you see the planets, uh, you see this very unique planet called Earth in which sustains our life, form as we know it, and you look all around at everything else, and you say, you know what? How'd this all get here? How did it all get here? Well, the theories that are out there is that basically <clears throat> it all came about as a result of nothing turning into something. Okay, well, what caused this nothing to turn into something? And the, and the explanation is everything, there was a big bang one day, everything blew up, and here we are. And I listened to that and I said, okay, that, that's what you believe. What's harder to believe? My explanation is I see design, I see purpose, I see order, I see structure, and everything that I see in our universe and in my life that has design, purpose, order, and structure, I see behind the design, order, and structure a designer. And so it's not hard for me to believe that therefore there must be someone or something out there who existed before all of this existed and designed it and brought it into power. Well, people go, wow, you know what? Well, then there must be, if there's a God, he had to exist before everything came into being. I agree with that. And he must be really powerful to do everything that we see happen. And I agree with that. 
So where's our differences of agreement? And it'll cause people to stop and think. So, so either you agree that there's a designer, creator, who created everything that we see, or everything that you see is a, is a product of a random thing that happened at a moment in time, and there's nothing like, like, like it in the universe that's ever been duplicated since. And I'll take the same scientist and say, go into a room with nothing. No, in fact, you can't even go into the room. Look into the window of a room where there is nothing, and I want you to tell me how everything's going to come into existence. You get keep looking through the window, because I'm waiting for a universe to appear. And you know what? I'm a lot more confident with the fact that I'm banking on a designer, creator, who may have taken nothing and made it into something, but at least there's a point of origin as far as who it was that put it all together. The second thing that stands out in my mind as it relates to all of these things is the fact that, you know, we look at man's nature. <clears throat> in a very, you know, in a, in, a, in a class of basic anatomy makes you really think. Did we just all come into being as a result of a random act that took place the complexity and the amazing human body. You know, when you stop to think about that, is the marvel of man's physical body the result of a cosmic chance? And, and personally, I find that very hard to believe. I find it impossible to believe. I don't want to sweep all these theories of evolution under the, under the rug or become like the ostrich that buries its head in the sand. But on the other hand, I've got some questions that aren't answered by any of these theories of evolution. Nor is the fact of my ability to reason about these questions easily explained apart from a creator who designed me and you like himself with a mind to think and the ability to reason beyond the immediate stimuli of my environment and personal needs. With the material universe in mind and man's nature, and I'll come back more to this in a second, you know, I've, I've noted on here, then we also have the, the, what I call manuscript evidence. And I had to put it manuscript because it starts with M and everything in that category is an M. <laughs> but what, what that's saying is, you know what, because the Bible says so. The Bible says so. Because the Bible answers the questions that I have about the material universe and the nature of man. What does the Bible say? Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. When you look up into the heavens, you see the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the earth. You look around and you say, you know what? There is majesty here. There is design here. There is order here. There is purpose here. There is structure here. There is, there is a creator behind all of this. And the Bible says, that's right. In Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have clear, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse. Everything that God has made shouts that God exists. Everything. Turn with me to Psalm 8, a wonderful passage that reminds us once again of this truth that, you know what, that everything God has created and made is for a purpose, and the purpose is to reveal God to mankind. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You know, when I consider, and the word consider is to take a good hard look for the purpose of evaluation. When I consider thy heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you have taken thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and thou hast crowned him with glory and majesty. You, you do make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all of the earth. When I consider everything around me and I consider how you have made me, I said, man, I'm just blown away by this. I'm just blown away by all of it. You know, think about it. Whoever made this universe was in existence before it was made, and whoever made or caused it has tremendous power and ability. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's what the, book, the word Genesis means, beginnings. And, and man asked, how did this all begin? In the beginning, God. It tells us who. It tells us when. It tells us how. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the deep. And then God spoke the world into existence. See, we, we got the answers for us that are found in Scripture. We got the, the, the answer to the nature of man that's found in the Word of God. When God's Word says, and then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the cattle and over the earth and all over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You know, when we look at man, we get a glimpse of God because we are created in the image and the likeness of God. Are we God? No. Will we ever be God? No. God is God and we are his created being. But when we see each other, we see a glimpse of God. You have formed my inward parts, Psalm 139 says. You have covered me in my mother's womb, and I will praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were written the days that were fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. What a wonderful thought that is. Well, my wife, when we had our first child, you know, I was blown away by that. And then to have two more and to be there in the delivery room and see all of that. And you go, oh, this is an amazing thing. And to see and live long enough to see two grandchildren and, and to recognize what, how, how amazing 
that whole process is that God would, would create life and entrust it to other human beings and that we would see this thing and, and just how ma- amazing that that is. And if you think about everything that's involved in the human body, you know, when you think about the eyes and the ears and the brain and, and, and you know, and, and the intelligence and, and, and all the things that we do and, you know, and I'm learning more about the human body than I frankly ever care to want to know. <laughs> and, and I just get blown away by all of it. You know, with, with my, my doc that's here today, we, you know, we talk about insulin levels and blood sugar levels and, and cells being receptive to certain drugs at a certain therapeutic moment. And, and it's just an amazing thing. And yet, it's, there, it, there's no exact science to it. It's a practice, and, and, and it changes, and we adjust. And, and he laughs. He's, he looks at me and says, you know, but, but I'm, not give, I'm, I'm only giving you the amount of insulin that I'm giving to, you know, a 90-pound woman. I'm like, what? Wait, wait a minute. What is that? Was that a compliment or an insult? I don't even know. You know, I don't know enough about these things, you know? And we laugh about it. And then he looks at my wife and he says, what do you think, doc? And she's like, lower it, lower it, lower it. And so that's good, but you know, when we struggle with all of these things that are going on, and, and, uh, and give you an example, um, about a month ago, my shoulder was hurting really bad, and you know, and, and I asked Linda, you know, can you rub this out? There must be a knot or something there, and then I knew I was going to have this lung lung surgery, so I went golfing, and um, <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I knew I wouldn't be golfing for a while. But, uh, and, but anyway, I went golfing, and I was terrible. And the guys that I was golfing with felt really good about how bad I was, but I was just brutal. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. It was like, you know, I couldn't swing. I, I was just, like, messed up. And, and uh, so after my surgery, the surgeon came in, and he visited me, and I said, you know, Doc, my shoulder's killing me. I mean, is it the way you have my arm twisted over my head during the surgery? Or, and he just started laughing. He said, no. He said, what happened was the tumor that was in your lower left lobe of your lung, it grew and attached to your diaphragm. He said, so when I had to cut it, I had to cut it out of your diaphragm and then re-sew up your diaphragm and then also remove that lobe. And what you have is you have referred pain from your diaphragm. I didn't know my diaphragm could refer pain to my shoulder. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, I'd like to refer some pain to you. You know, I, I didn't know it could do that. And I like to refer it back. <laughs> and he said, that's why, like, people that have a heart attack, they grab their shoulder. And it's like, well, you know, do you have a pain in your shoulder? Well, it's like, well, am I having a heart attack? Well, you might be if you have sh- pain in your shoulder. What? And it's all, you know, but the point is it all ties together. And I thought, how amazing the human body is. Just how everything ties together. And then you recognize and you see what God has to say. You know, Paul said, for in him and God we live and we move and we have our very being. 1 Corinthians 15, 39 says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh for men, there's another kind of flesh for beasts, there's another for fish, there's another for birds. And I think what a wonderful statement that is to contradict the nonsense that everybody's the same, that somehow we evolve from animals, and so therefore, if these tests prove true in monkeys, they must therefore work in people. And the reality of it is no, because God says, you know what, there's a flesh, a flesh of men is different than the flesh of animals, and so you got to understand that everything God does is to get people to think about who he is. And that's a wonderful thing. 
Why did God become a man? To reveal God to man in a way that only the universe does partially, only in the way that we do partially, only in the way that Scripture does to some degree partially. But I'll tell you what, why did God become a man? So that we can see God more clearly for who He is. The Bible says, and the Word became flesh. And that's what I want to focus our attention on. In Isaiah chapter 7, in verse 14, we're told that this will be a sign. And the sign will be that you will behold a virgin with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14. And Isaiah 9, 6, unfortunately, a passage that we refer to often only at Christmas, but is a passage that we need to refer to every day of our life. For unto us a child is born, to us a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no increase, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace or the throne of David over his kingdom. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Turn with me to the book of Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew as we see in Matthew's account the same thing and also an explanation of what we just read in, in Isaiah. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we'll just read this portion of this account. But when he had considered... When he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Well, why was he freaking out? He's like, man, I'm not marrying this lady. She's pregnant. And I didn't touch her. And you're telling me to marry her. And everybody around is talking about how she's this loose woman. And he said, you know what, don't be afraid to marry her, because if you remember, the prophet Isaiah said of him, she would be born of a virgin. And so she meets the qualifications. And so he took her, he was conceived of the Spirit, and she will bear a son, and his name will be Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and notice, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated literally means God with us. So what we only got a glimpse of in the universe, what we only catch a glimpse of in our nature what we only see a piece of in the Word of God, we see in totality in fulfillment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Son of David, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father. That is what we see. And if that's not enough, turn with me to John's gospel in the first chapter where we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing has come into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. If you remember, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He pointed to him and said, I'm doing the job God called me to do. I'm telling you that Jesus is the one that God has promised. Believe on him. He wasn't the light. John the Baptist wasn't the light. But he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not even know him. He came to his own, speaking to the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word, people, became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation means in flesh. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, even though John the Baptist was six months chronologically older than Jesus. Uh, from an earthly standpoint, he said, He existed before me. He is greater than me. For of his fullness we have received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the business of the Father. He has explained him. He goes on in the 14th chapter, if you want to read that with me as well. And he, re and he recognizes to Philip who asked the question, Jesus, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to the Father. And he said, well, then show me the Father. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. In John 14, 8, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father am one. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. God eats peaches and cream. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians chapter 4. He's not, he's not lactose intolerant. He's not on my diet. But when the fullness of time came forth, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Two more, and we'll look at, two more to look at. Colossians chapter 1. I want to make a point, and I hope you're not missing it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and all things have been created for him. He is the image of of the invisible God. And lastly, in Hebrews chapter 1, the exclamation point of God in the New Testament. Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago 
to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways. And these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. The point of this passage is this. God has spoken to people in a whole bunch of ways for a whole bunch of periods of time. But in these last days, he's got one final statement to mankind. You know what his statement is? Jesus. In fact, that's what the sentence literally means. It means when it says that in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, in the original language, it, there, there's no in his son. He has spoken to us in son, in Jesus, period, exclamation point, end of argument. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God in human flesh, the incarnation. He became and took on the appearance of men. So like men, so that you and I would know fully who God is. Do you want to know how to get to heaven? then you look at Jesus and you find out from him what's the way. I'm the way, the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. Do you need to know what to believe? Then you listen to his words. And he says, you know what? Just like manna was sent down from heaven, so I have come down from heaven. If you will believe upon me, you will trust in me, then your sins will be forgiven. If you believe me, and me alone. He has been given a name that's more excellent above every other name. Immediately, you should think of Philippians chapter 2. Because he was made in appearance or appeared in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to the point of obedience to death upon the cross. And because he was obedient to the death upon a cross, God gave him a name that was highly exalted above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God for those who are in heaven, those who are under the earth, those who are on the earth, those who have been created throughout all human history at some point will praise God for Jesus, but we have a window of opportunity here and now that's different than praising him later when it's too late. So the question that goes back to all this is, why did God become a man? He became a man to reveal himself to men in a way that we cannot argue or disagree or say, I don't understand. You see Jesus, you see God. Why? Because he and the Father are one. You see the compassion of Jesus, you see God. You see the love of Jesus, you see God. You see the wrath of Jesus, the judgment of Jesus, you see God. Everything we need to know about God is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who we celebrate, became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the second thing is, well, what else did he come to accomplish? Well, Galatians 4 tells us very clearly. But when the fullness of time came, for, came God sent forth his son, God's timing, born of a woman, under the law, in order that he might, what? Redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Why did God become a man? 
to reveal God to men in a way that the material universe only did partially. Man's nature only gives us a glimpse. The manuscripts of Scripture gives us a broader and wider picture. But he became God because, you know what? In the Messiah, we see everything we need to know about the Savior. Now, we can also get into our personal experiences, my experience, your experience with God. Why do I believe there's a God? Because he changed my life. Why do I believe there's a God? Because when I repented of sin and turned and trust in Christ, I've never been the same. But, you know, our experiences are highly subjective. But at the same time, when you combine them with all the other evidence that I'm giving you, I'm hoping to present a very powerful argument as to the existence of God. Now, we also get into why God became a man to redeem man to God. See, in God's plan of salvation, sin must be paid for. That's why the angel said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, sin must be paid for, forgiven, and the sinner redeemed or set free from the penalty, power, and the very presence of sin. Redemption is meaningless without forgiveness of sin. And so I want to just share with you three very important words that are found in the New Testament. The first one is the word redemption. And redemption is found, there's four different Greek words that are used, but the majority of them are all used in the context of to be set loose or to be set free, to be redeemed or to buy back. We have been bought with the precious blood of Christ Therefore, glorify God now in our earthly bodies. Uh, it means to buy out of slavery or to redeem or to make the most of. So the word picture is this. In, in our Lord's culture, there were slaves. And there were those who were sold into slavery. There were those who were, once they were into slavery, could be purchased and bought out of slavery. So the word picture is a powerful one that says this. The whole reason that God became a man is to redeem man to God or to buy back that which was put into slavery when Adam sinned and rebelled against God, all of mankind was put on, basically, we were all put into the slave market. And we became slaves to the devil. We became slaves to sin. We became slaves to death, our greatest enemy. The whole purpose of God sending Jesus to the earth was not only to reveal God to man, but to redeem man to God or to pay the price that was acceptable to God to get us out of the slave market and to bring us back home to the family of God. So when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead. For those who believe in him, his death and his resurrection, he has paid a price that's sufficient and acceptable to God to get us out of the slave market and to buy us back and bring us back home. To where we belong. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's just an amazing thought when you think about the simplicity of why did God become a man? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The second word is, is, is similar, and that is the word ransom. Jesus said, I have come to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And the word ransom means two things. One, it means instead of or as a substitute. And the second means in the, on behalf of or in sufficiency. 
In 1 Timothy 4.10, Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So follow this very clearly. The ransom that Jesus paid is as a substitute for you and me and is sufficient, the amount is sufficient for everybody in the world, but applicable only to those who believe. See, you can have somebody come to you and say, listen, I'm going to pay for your medical treatment, and I guarantee you that the treatment will heal you. You follow the logic to this? Now, you have a choice. All right, you can say, okay, then I'll accept your deal, and I'll take the treatment, and I'll be healed, and what you pay is sufficient to cover my treatment, and therefore I'm healed. Or I can say, well, that's nice of you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And then never go to the doctor who's going to do the treatment that would heal me. And I could say, well, yeah, I believe it. No, you don't believe it. If you really believed it, you would go and you would take person up on it. What God is saying is, listen, I've paid the price. It's sufficient for everybody and anybody who will take me up on the offer. But you have to act upon it. And it's by God's grace through faith. The act that God requires of man is not to go work our way through a process, but it's to believe what God says and take him at his word. He's saying, Chuck, if you will just believe that Jesus paid the price and I'm happy with the price that he paid as a substitute for your sins and the penalty for your sin, and if you will just take me up on it and believe what I have to say, then I will free you, loose you from sin, from slavery, from the devil, from the enemy, and I will adopt you and bring you back home into my family where you rightfully belong, and you will be a child of God to those who believe in his name, the authority and the power of Jesus to forgive your sins, which is the last point, and that is reconciliation. The world reconcile means to restore back to its original proper purpose. Listen, God created man to have fellowship with God. Our original purpose was to enjoy God for all of eternity. Adam said, no thank you. And we're all born into the world with the same sin nature that says, no thank you. I'm my own God. I'll do things the way that I want to do things, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't want anybody, God or otherwise, telling me what to do. Just the fact we have that attitude is a, 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 a symptom of a root problem that's called sin nature. And so he said he has... God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, read it sometime, and it says that you and I who have trusted in Christ have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our, our job for God is to go around this world and try to bring man who's estranged from God back into a right relationship with God by telling them of their need to turn from sin and to trust in Christ, we have been given the ministry of reconciling a, a stray, wayward person back to the God who created them so that he can enjoy their fellowship once again. Isn't that great? Why did God become a man? For the purposes that set forth, to reveal God to man 
and to redeem man to God. I was laying in the hospital this week and something jumped out at me. And it was Job, where Job said that, you know what? Hey, as for me, he goes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I couldn't help but think about this passage. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. And my heart faints within me at the thought. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I want to ask you one last question. How about you? Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Do you know that Jesus came and he died on the cross? Three days later, he was raised from the dead, that he is alive today. He walked on the face of the earth and demonstrated with remarkable, miraculous demonstrations that he was alive, that he had conquered sin, that he had conquered death. He ascended into heaven and he seats at the right hand of God the Father today from where he will come in glory one day. He will come back to this earth to judge the living and the dead. And he's saying to you and me that you and I can know that our Redeemer lives and that better than us knowing that he lives, that he knows that we are his children to those who have believed in the name of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing this is all about. Christmas, don't ever take it for granted. You know, Christmas, don't ever let it become a hustle and bustle of running around and and dinners and brunches and lunches and gifts and all of that. Let it be an opportunity to be able to share with those around us the wonderful truth of why God became a man so that he could reveal himself to us more fully and he can redeem us to him completely and wholly for all of eternity. I hope you can make it tonight, get a glimpse of the worship service that we'll have here tonight, uh, invite a friend to come and, and just be blessed by the truth that they'll hear in the words and the song. And uh, for those who can't make it, uh, God bless you, Merry Christmas, and use this opportunity that you have to be able to be blessed by telling others why it is that God became a man. You can tell them why Santa doesn't exist anymore, and then you can, and you can lead right into, hey, and by the way, let me tell you what I learned about why God became a man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. I thank you that I can stand here before your people to uh, lift your name up, to praise you, and to continue to do so with, uh, with all the strength that you, have le- that you have given me. God, I just thank you for your love for each one of us. I thank you for the plan that you have for each one of our lives. I'm just in awe of the fact that the God of the universe would be humble enough to take on the likeness or the appearance of a man, humble to the point of death, even death upon a cross, that he would be raised again three days later. He is alive, and he looks for and longs for all of his stray children to come back and seek his forgiveness and his mercy. God, we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We thank you that he came to redeem us who were under the law. 
to buy us back, to ransom us from captivity, to reconcile us to our rightful position in the universe as fellowship and as children of those who believe in your name. God, we thank you. We love you. We praise you in the wonderful name of Jesus, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.